Welcome to Thrive Radio, expert visionary and innovative business, life, and relationship advice to live a life of doing the impossible with your host, Amy Montgomery. host, Amy Montgomery, entrepreneur and digital marketing agency owner. Today, my guest is Stephen James. He's an expert, peace, culture, and human flourishing psychologist and experience in conflict, meditation, facilitation, and restorative justice, as well as transformational growth for individuals and communities. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for our discussion today. Can you share your journey with us and really how you started in your business and, and what you do? Yeah, so I started quite a ways ago, more than a decade ago, I used to be an astrophysicist in the Air Force. And I ended up leaving that career field because of a set of tragedies that I experienced when I lost my brother, my niece and my best friend all in a very short period of time. And so that tragedy changed my whole perspective on life and what I was going for. I had wanted to be an astrophysicist since I was 10 years old. I wanted to know all the secrets in the military and where all the alien spacecraft were hidden and those type of things. But no alien spacecraft, which was sad, but also I ended up not enjoying the lifestyle after I had those changes. But what did happen was I found a much deeper happiness and fulfillment with my life in general as I started to make this transition. And so ever the scientist, I wanted to understand what had happened to me. When people go through these type of struggles, we know intuitively that we gain from the hardships that we have, but I changed my life to try to understand why from a scientific perspective, what goes on in people that causes this process. And most importantly, can you abstract that growth without having to go through trauma? Can you gain that type of fulfillment without it? And that led me down a path of really developing a much broader understanding of of how humans thrive and in what types of environments are necessary for that to happen. I got my PhD in educational psychology and conflict resolution, and I did research for seven years and then did implementation in education systems trying to teach this because we don't do enough of that in terms of all the psychology that we know these days. Finally, I started a consulting company a couple of years ago, but finally took it full-time on the road last year and have been doing that since. So in walking through that journey, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for the, the tranquility and the beauty that was opened up to me through that and the opportunity to share that because what came out of that process was that, yeah, you can help people and cultures to improve and be more human-centered and yet still raise everybody up together regardless of where you're at. And, and that type of fulfillment is I'm very grateful for. So what is a peace-driven culture? This is where we get into the psychology of it all. And a, a peace-driven culture is one in which satisfies all of our human needs. And so we tend to think, especially in business sectors, okay, I'm going to give some money and resources and benefits, and then people are can go out and do what they want. Except in a peace-driven culture, it's taken on as a responsibility of everyone to fulfill everyone's full human needs. And that includes things that aren't tangible, like love and belonging, self-esteem, self-actualization, and even self-transcendence. Because once we have all of those pieces in place, this is where people really flourish as human beings and 
one of the most fascinating aspects of this is the depravities of the human condition start to fall away as these needs are satisfied, particularly those higher ones of actualization and transcendence. People become more altruistic and humble and sacrificial in a good way. They're motivated to engage and, and give of themselves to others in ways that they might not have been before. So uh, how did, oh, go, go ahead. How do leaders create loyalty and employee fulfillment in their business? This is a fun one. The way that this happens is like I was talking about with these peace-driven cultures, we tend to think exclusively about material benefits and ignore the intangible aspects. Now you hear a lot of this these days. There's articles that you can pull up anytime about purpose-driven business cultures, like give your business a purpose. And this has to do with that, except it doesn't take it far enough. Simply giving a purpose to your business and saying, here's something that's important that's beyond making money for a company. Here's where you can devote yourself to. There's more complex aspects to it in terms of making all of that work. Does your business provide acceptance and belonging? Does it provide opportunities for intrinsic self-worth and growing people's sense of self and a sense of place? If their business looks at things in terms of simply, you're a worker that I'm paying to do a job. And when you leave here, you're on your own. That shouldn't be the perspective of a leader. A leader has to cultivate these higher needs and incorporate them into the structure of their organization. And a leader who isn't actively creating these environments and providing those resources is essentially failing to create these peace-driven cultures and fails to provide for their employees. Because once you have these peace-driven cultures in place, that loyalty is naturally going to spring up as is employee fulfillment. So people are going to feel more dedicated and motivated to engage with the business that they're working for. This means potentially staying longer to work on projects without being forced to, because there's an intrinsic motivation to engage with that, to take work home possibly. It's important to note though, that this is not an exploitive practice, right? We want to create a community is essentially what we're doing. We're creating a community where people feel comfortable and don't feel like they're being pushed in a certain way. So the natural human reaction we have to that is to be more dedicated and loyal. What ways can we increase productivity and profitability? So like with the last question, this one is, is connected together. There's a common misconception that and, and I saw this with my time when I was in the military as well, that you have to make a choice at some point between in the military, it was the people and the mission. In companies, it's the profit and the employee welfare. And somehow you have to balance those two. And there's this idea that if you increase one, you're decreasing the other. And that's simply not true. There is a mound of data in sociological research, in management, and in psychology that these two things are directly correlated, that as you increase one, the other one increases as well, when you are focused on long-term growth and sustainability. There's a different effect if you're only focused in short-term gains that can actually cause a destructive effect. So what we're looking for is creating that synergy where they both rise up together. So when you think about this, employees that are willing to dedicate more time and more effort to the business are going to be more productive inherently. Even during their time, their normal office hours, when they have that internal purpose to work for the company, 
their time is going to be more focused. Additionally, when you don't place these type of restrictions uh, on them and this type of uh, external stresses and it create intrinsic motivation to do these things, stress and anxiety decrease, which reduces distraction, sickness, timeout, and errors in their work. It also allows an opportunity to empower employees to use unique talents within the workplace that might not otherwise be there. If you hold people into a very strict definition of what they need to do at their workplace and never try to find out or cultivate those intrinsic strengths, you're often losing out on a valuable set of talents that might be applied to your work environment uh, because the person that can define themselves the best in terms of their offering is the person themselves, not the manager above them. Yeah, I like that. How do some um, policies and procedures dehumanize people? I'm going to use the term violence when I speak here, and I mean it in a very particular way. I'm working on a publication right now with a colleague in terms of expanding the definition of violence to mean non-flourishing. When we deny people or hinder their ability to flourish as human beings, then that in of itself leads to hostile, violent behavior, anxiety-stricken dehumanization, as said in the last question. So whenever we engage in a process that hinders that type of growth and fulfillment, we're engaging in an act of violence. So we can create office cultures, and unfortunately often do, that promote this type of needs violence. We can try to put that framing around it. Because what we're doing in the process when we restrict people to, so here's a good example. When we give people a very strict definition of what their role within an organization is, and that role additionally is disconnected from a purpose-driven motive. So here's where the idea of a purpose-driven culture is very important. When my duties, when I look at my contract and say, this is what I'm obligated to do, if it is not immediately obviously apparent how those tasks relate to contribution to the welfare of others, then I'm going to become disconnected and I'm not going to be able to flourish in the way I'm not going to be motivated. Um, That duties and roles responsibility from a management perspective, what we're essentially doing is reducing people to commodities. You are a worker that I'm paying to fill this role and you're not the person, you're just the worker. And that inherently creates this dehumanization effect whenever we remove the quote, humanity from our business practices. So one way is by restricting roles. Another way is through creating attempts to make our businesses more efficient. In my ideal business world, I would suggest to try and get away from the word efficiency altogether, the entire concept of efficiency. It ought to be a bad word uh, that we use. The problem with efficiency is It's about minimizing costs and maximizing profits and benefits. But when we talk about efficiency, we don't factor in human costs. If you're trying to calculate efficiency and use a spreadsheet, well, how do you put in a number for this increased stress and anxiety caused to employees or the amount of demotivation that is instilled by forcing a quota and tracking system, which is an inherent way to really kill an employee's motivation is to instill a quota or tracking system. So these very small things can have huge effects. A final example might be leave policies. When we have policies that don't take into account 
the context and consequences of a person's individual situation, we're also doing this commodification effect. When we're saying, all right, well, this is the policy and we have to follow the policy to be fair to everybody. That's often the logic that's used. The problem is that treating every person exactly the same is one of the most unfair ways to implement something. It is inherently a process of inequality by being exactly the same and applying things the same across the board. What we want to do is take into account the specific consequences and conditions. So as an example with the leave policy, um, the last company that I worked for before I started myself, they had a, a leave policy on file, but if you had something going on that was important that could also maybe benefit the company or be rejuvenating to yourself or help solve a personal problem outside of work, taking an extra week off outside of your leave, that was no problem. Uh, leave wasn't even really tracked. Now, I won't recommend that for everyone to not track leave at all because that can be prone to exploitation. But the point is that in each situation, we need to look at the person and their situation and not apply policies equally across the board because that is unfair in and of itself. So what are some of the largest changes your clients described in their business and culture um, and employees after working with you? Oh, this is good. Yes, this is a fun one. So it is really fulfilling for me in my work to see these changes really come into play after everything comes through. And this culture propagates, has time to propagate and instill itself a little bit. One of the biggest things that I see is a decrease in the rigidity of hierarchies among employees, entry-level employees and managers and even uh, corporate level. So as you decrease hierarchy, then you're increasing democratization. This does not, despite some thinking, lead to chaos in the workplace. Creating a more less hierarchical, more equal field in terms of social roles within an organization actually creates more idea generation among people because people are less afraid of that hierarchy. They're more willing to step out and engage with those individual intrinsic ideas. As I said before, we really want to inspire people in our workplaces to develop their intrinsic talents and give them the the motivational and, and tangible resources they need to do that because our workplace benefits from them cultivating those strengths. And when you democratize your workplace and decrease hierarchy, you're allowing those ideas to flourish in a much more productive way that they're utilized. Because you can think of the opposite where someone has some good ideas for the workplace and yet they get essentially squashed or pushed to the side because there's not that type of true um, engagement with that employee's perspectives and views. So when we lower that down and implement systems that allow for that, but still maintain an order, that's when we really, that's when I really see things come together. Another thing that really changes a lot is I push this in my work and, and the systems we develop is to get rid of punitive systems, get rid of punishment systems within your workplace. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but they shouldn't be a go-to when there's an infraction or when there's something wrong. Instead, we wanna use 
restorative process. And this is where a lot of my background in restorative justice and restorative conflict resolution comes in when I'm working with clients. We want to decrease fear of punitive punishment. We don't want the motivations to why a person, a person comes into work to be that they're afraid of losing their job, that they're afraid of getting docked work, that they're afraid of, of having a reprimand on their record, depending on where we're at. We don't want that to be a motivation at all. That only comes into play in extreme circumstances. We want to use restorative practices. So yes, there might be an infraction. There might be something that's going wrong in this person, but using restorative practices eliminates that fear of punitive action, which again, creates a workforce that is more able to step out and be engaged with the company, be loyal and gain that fulfillment because there's no more fear of something going wrong and they're more willing to engage with their ideas. And then, like I said earlier as well, one of the goals is to get employees more engaged and willing to stay later, willing to do the work that needs to get done because there's a core purpose and a core drive to the organization. So you often see in the clients that I work with, that employees do indeed stay longer, take work home, finish projects because they're invested in the projects that they're working on, regardless of what they are. And the trick really is, is giving them that freedom to work without the dehumanizing systems in place and empower them to be connected with a deeper purpose. And all of that comes together in a very complex system, but it's so rewarding to see it when it actually comes through. Love that. So what do you think has been your truth that has gotten you this far in your journey? Okay. So the answer to this is going to seem somewhat silly uh, at first, but I am raised in the late eighties and nineties when I was going up, coming up through school. And at that time, Star Trek was huge on the earth, the three and four different series during the 15 year period. And Star Trek creates a world that embodies this idea that people don't work for money anymore. In fact, money generally doesn't exist. It's a post-scarcity economy because they essentially anything that you want that is a basic need, you can just have. And so why do we work then? So imagining 400 years in the future, why would people go to work every day? What would people do with their time if they no longer had to work for basic needs and basic survival? A lot of common misconceptions come along with this that stretches back to a period in Europe called the Enlightenment period and a philosophy of essentially human depravity, that unless you push people to have to survive, then they'll be lazy and not work efficiently and not work hard for their job. And we now know in modern psychology, in what we've discovered in the last 50, 60 years, that that's totally untrue. People are motivated to work. They just need that purpose. And Star Trek was an embodiment of that flourishing ideal of no more money, post-scarcity economy, everyone working for the betterment of themselves and personal growth and becoming the best person they can be. And this is why I went into astrophysics in the military. I thought that this was the avenue to go to, to try to see that world realized. When that didn't work out, I then turned to psychology here to ask some of the same questions. All right, if the answer is not in astrophysics, then it must be in the cultures and environments that we're creating today. And we need to evolve those to push forward this more ideal world that we hope to see, which maybe it will take 400 years, but it is possible because it's what's innate to human psychology. It's just a misconception that it's not. And so I work now and I worked before and I will continue to work to try to create that, that 
science fiction world and make it not so fiction. Like that. So if you're able to give yourself one piece of advice when you first started out, what would it be? This is where I have to say, well, where are we talking about started? Because um, if I'm talking about all the way back when I was an astrophysicist and had those tragedies, or am I talking about when I started my consulting business? But I think the answer might be the same at every step. When, I'm, when I've been making these changes and trying to push forward with these ideas, it's easy. it was easy for me to get caught up in thinking about what people want. What would people expect from someone doing psychology research? What would someone expect from psychology education? What would they expect from a psychology-based business consultant? And trying to fit what I'm good at to what people would expect. And each time I've done that, I very quickly realized that that's not the correct way to think. And so if you're starting out and you believe you have an expertise, so I very much am based in a very unique skill set that I have as an expert. So if you're a consultant that's looking to expand based on a specific expertise, the question to ask isn't how can I fit my skills into what people expect? It's how can I fit my skills into what I truly love and then get people to want what that is? So bring people, it's a bring people to you thing, don't go to people in terms of the ideas and expertise that you bring. Because what happens when you try to fit what you're good at to what people expect is you're going to be dispassionate and it's harder to motivate, it's harder to work, it's harder to speak in a way that is engaging with people. And so you're going to come across that way and you're just going to be one of a thousand other people trying to do the same thing. So you need to find that unique niche and that's based on fitting what you're good at to what you love and then bring people to that. I love that. I absolutely love that. Love that. So if there are people, Stephen, that are listening and they would love to get a hold of you to work with you, what's the best way to contact you? Yes. So my website, which has direct contact information on there as well, is www.humanity-consulting.org is my business. I also have pretty much every social media I've started up recently and YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and it's humanity consulting at all of those, but those are on my website as well. Mm-hmm. You can reach me email directly. It's on the website, but it's steven.james at humanityconsulting.org at the same domain. Perfect. I'll put all those links down below. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise today. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad I was able to share. Yes, definitely. And if you're listening, you want more information about this podcast and upcoming shows, you can visit a call to thrive.com. Thank you everyone and have a wonderful week.